0: But if we gave the mice UV, they had significantly less atherosclerotic plaques. In fact, in some of the mice they had, we couldn't find any at all.
1: Human OS
0: Learn, Master, Achieve.
1: we're generally encouraged to protect ourselves from sun exposure as much as possible by health organizations. This is due to the well-understood link between UV light and skin cancer. Ultraviolet radiation penetrates deeply into the skin and generates DNA-damaging molecules, which can result in mutations and cancer over time. There's little doubt that excessive sun exposure to sunlight can be harmful, but research increasingly suggests that too little sun exposure may be at least as detrimental. Studies have revealed, for instance, that living further from the equator is associated with increased risk for many other cancers like colon, breast, brain, leukemia, etc. And lack of sun exposure has also been linked to a greater risk for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Humans evolved under bright sunlight in equatorial Africa, so perhaps it shouldn't be too surprising that ultraviolet light is an important health input. Indeed, the wide variations in human skin color may be the most obvious evidence of our fundamental need for sunlight. As humans migrated to areas further from the equator where ultraviolet levels were lower, natural selection favored lighter skin. This adaptation is thought to enable UV light to penetrate more readily and generate essential vitamin D. But trials testing vitamin D supplementation have been largely disappointing, suggesting that the health effects of ultraviolet light may be independent of vitamin D, and researchers are still trying to tease out these mechanisms. One of these researchers is my guest today, Scott Byrne. Scott is a professor at the University of Sydney. He is a cellular immunologist who is studying the effects of sunlight on the body, particularly the immune system. He recently published a study examining how solar ultraviolet radiation affects body fat and cardiovascular disease in mice, and the results are pretty remarkable. Without further ado, Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. Tell us about your background and how you became interested in the health effects of sunlight.
0: So I'm an immunologist, I'm fascinated by how the immune system works. And my research started in the area of skin cancer and the effects of sunlight on the skin and the body and how exposure to sunlight causes skin cancers. It's well known, as you said in your introduction, Dan, that sunlight damages DNA, particularly the ultraviolet part of sunlight. And this is a really important component to the development of skin cancers. What is perhaps less appreciated is that exposure to UV also suppresses our immune system and particularly the type of immune response that we need to fight off cancers. So, this is probably why sunlight is one of the most ubiquitous and most damaging of the carcinogens. It not only damages the DNA, it also suppresses the immune system that is required to combat those cancers. And this fascinated me as an immunologist. I wanted to know how does sunlight do this? We started to investigate this in multiple models. We use um, animal models to dissect out mechanisms, and we also do studies in human skin to work out whether the effects that we're seeing in our models can be replicated in humans. And remarkably, they can be. And so we can correlate some of the events that we see in our models to some of the events that we see in the human population as well.
1: Is it UVA or UVB that is responsible for the observed effects on the immune system, or do both play a role?
0: Traditionally, we th- we've always thought that it's only been UVB that causes immune suppression. If you want to remember how, what UVB and UVA does, we always tell people that B is for burning and A is for aging. UVB is potently immune suppressive and damaging to DNA. Some of the studies that we did about 20-odd years ago now show that actually UVA is also immune-suppressive, but at different doses and via different mechanisms. Both UVB and UVA suppress our immune system.
1: So could this immune suppression have other downsides aside from cancer, like does it increase susceptibility to infections or decrease effectiveness of vaccinations? That's another excellent question.
0: I suppose to answer that, the best way is to sort of give you a really quick introduction to the immune systems. There are really two types of immune responses that we make. One of them is what we call an innate response. And it happens very quickly and very early. And this type of response seems to actually be activated by UV, which is probably one of the reasons why we don't succumb to infections, bacterial infections in particular, where we go outside in the sun. But over long periods of time, what we notice is that actually the other type of immune response that we have, which is called the adaptive immune system, is actually suppressed. This is the type of immune response that we need to combat cancers. It's also the type of immune response that we target when we vaccinate to try and mount protection from infectious diseases. And there is some very strong evidence to suggest that exposure to UV does have an effect on the success rates of vaccination.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Epidemiological data suggests that immune disorders like autoimmune and allergic disease have been increasing over the last three decades in Western countries. Could reduce sun exposure due to spending more time indoors be a contributing factor?
0: It could. don't have any definitive evidence to show that that's actually the case. Certainly, there's been correlative evidence from epidemiological studies to suggest that could be a contributing factor. It is quite an alarming increase in autoimmunity and, and allergic responses over a very short period of time. And what this tells us is that this is unlikely to be a genetic effect it's far more likely to be an environmental effect. It's not going to be just UV light or sunlight that is responsible for this. It's also likely to be diet. It's also likely to be activity and all of those things impact on our environment and our ability to respond to those on sorts.
1: Sunlight causes skin cancer, but living closer to the equator seems to reduce the risk of many cancers. What do you think are some of the possible mechanisms there?
0: I've looked at some of the data around the relationship between sunlight, um, latitude, which is what you're referring to by the equator and those other cancers. And we've got a review on that. The evidence is not that compelling actually that sunlight exposure and latitude is related to other cancers The evidence for autoimmunity is far more convincing, particularly for multiple sclerosis. And some of the best studies I've seen in this area have been done in Australia, and they've been done 30, 40 years ago now. But what they showed is that if you are born and bred in Tasmania, which for those who don't know, Tasmania is a part of Australia that's very far south, and therefore a long way from the equator, if you're born and bred in that part of Australia, you are six to seven times more likely to develop multiple sclerosis than if you're born in far north Queensland, which is much closer to the equator. So the evidence for autoimmunity is, is very strong in the correlation between UV exposure and autoimmunity. The evidence for other cancers is not as compelling.
1: Your recent study published earlier this year tested how solar radiation affects weight gain and cardiometabolic markers. Before we go into that specifically, tell us about what previous research had shown regarding how ultraviolet light and the influence on body weight, cardiovascular disease, and glucose metabolism, what have we seen there previous to your work?
0: Perhaps a little bit of background as to why we started to investigate this. In our models, we use mice to dissect out the mechanisms responsible for skin cancer development. And part of those models involve exposing mice to long-term UV doses, very similar to the types of doses and UV exposures that a human would get throughout their life. And if you do that for long enough, little skin tumours will start to appear on the mouse's back. And we can work out ways to stop that from happening and to develop new therapies. And what we noticed was that before the tumours started to develop, The mice that were receiving the UV radiation gained weight, but they gained weight far less than those who didn't get any of the UV. And what they suggested to us was that by mechanisms which we didn't understand, that if you got some UV radiation, you didn't gain weight nearly as quickly. And this was a fascinating observation to us. And it turned out that others were also observing very similar things. Shelley Gorman at the Telethon Kids Institute in Perth, uh, Western Australia, who's a colleague and friend of mine, was also working on this aspect of UV and obesity and diabetes. And she published a really lovely paper before we did in a journal called Diabetes, where she showed very strong links between UV exposure, and obesity, diabetes, and type 2 diabetes in particular. Also, other evidence in humans had suggested that exposure to UVA in particular was responsible for reductions in hypertension. So that's blood pressure and vascular flow. And this was actually done in humans. A dermatologist in the United Kingdom called Richard Weller. And Richard and his team showed very convincingly that if you gave skin UVA, it lowered blood pressure and increased vascular flow, which of course is one of the major contributors to cardiovascular disease. So there we were, we had evidence in both mice and humans that UV was having an effect on obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular
1: disease. I've seen well there's TED Talk, and I'll link to that in the show notes so people can take a look at that. That was yeah, fascinating. What mechanisms might explain this relationship?
0: What Shelley showed was that, in fact, release of nitric oxide from skin stores was responsible. For many years, we thought that UV-induced vitamin D would be responsible for this effect. And, And the reason we thought that was when you look at people who have diabetes, people who are suffering with cardiovascular disease, people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, they have very low circulating levels of vitamin D. And what it suggests, at least, is that vitamin D and these diseases might be linked It turns out, at least in our models, and as well as in the humans exposed to UVA by Richard, that in fact, it doesn't appear to be vitamin D, and there might be something else about UV that's causing this effect. And Shelley suspected that nitric oxide might be involved, and she showed quite convincingly that nitric oxide was responsible, at least partly, for this effect.
1: I saw in Gorman's study in 2014 that supplementing with vitamin D failed to show a lot of the benefits that were seen from sun exposure, but skin induction of nitric oxide produced a lot of the same benefits. So that's pretty right. And this
0: is consistent with the vitamin D supplementation trials being not as effective as we would like them to be. And again, it supports the idea that in addition to vitamin D, there's something else about UV that might be responsible
1: for these health effects. Thank you for that background. I'd love to dive into your study now. Tell us what you did. And there was a lot to this. So break it up in any fashion you see as most beneficial?
0: Following on from our observations in our um, skin cancer models, we decided that what we would do is we'd try to investigate how much UV is required to achieve this effect. And this is important because if we want to be able to advise people more appropriately on sun exposure, we would need to work out how much is required to do this and what types of UV and how frequently do we need to receive that type of UV. And what Shelley showed was that ultraviolet B radiation was responsible for this effect. But it's unusual for us as humans to just be exposed to UVB. We're far more likely to be exposed to sunlight and the UV in sunlight. And of course, sunlight is made up of both UVA and UVB. We have some sophisticated ways of mimicking the ultraviolet spectrum in sunlight in the lab. Very expensive pieces of equipment that give a very good reproduction of the solar spectrum. We don't give any visible or infrared, so there's no heat that's given in our models. So we exposed the mice to various doses of solar simulated UV light at various times and various frequencies. And what we discovered, fortuitously perhaps, was that actually the types of UV that cause skin cancer, so this is chronic low doses of UV over long periods of time, were not nearly as effective as more at higher doses and less frequently. So once a week, high doses were far more effective at, placing limits on weight gain in our mouse models. So the mice were fed a Western-style high-fat, high-sugar diet, and they gained weight very quickly in this way. And we were able to show that if you give a little bit of UV light once a week before we start the diet, or even if we start the UV after the mice have started eating their high-fat, high-sugar diet, we could limit the amount of weight that they gained. We can measure this by just weighing the mice, and there was at least a 10% reduction in weight gain. But we also have sophisticated ways of measuring the amount of body fat that these mice put on. And there was about a 30% reduction in body fat gain by the mice when they were exposed to UV.
1: It appeared that you were attempting within the study to see if it prevented weight gain in normal weight mice, then also some mice that had gained weight over time to see if it limited it or...
0: Yeah. And right? this is important for, for translation because What it means is that, first of all, we perhaps need to develop ways of preventing weight gain, but also once people have started a high-fat, high-sugar diet, UV might play a role in helping to place limits on how much weight is gained.
1: I did notice the effects of more punctuated, higher dose being more effective. We know that intermittent exposure to UV light is also thought to be a higher risk exposure to melanoma.
0: I am caught between a rock and a hard place here. My research focuses on both the carcinogenic effects of UV, but also the potentially health benefits of UV. And this is a conundrum because chronic low doses of UV will cause keratinocyte cancers, or what used to be called non-melanoma skin cancers high intermittent doses, ones that are close to sunburning doses, we know that they're the most dangerous for melanoma development. So I think what we aim to do with our models is to understand how UV does this so that we can either replicate or enhance that effect.
1: The amount of exposure you were giving to these rodents, how much did that translate in terms of minutes of exposure, would you say?
0: for the high intermittent exposures, it depends on where you are on the planet. But in Australia, our sun is relatively harsh compared to the Northern Hemisphere because of the hole in the ozone layer just beneath us. In Sydney, Australia, that's roughly 20 to 30 minutes of sunlight exposure. In the Northern Hemisphere, it might be more like 30 to 40 minutes of sunlight exposure. So we're still not talking about very, very high doses. We're just talking about doses that are actually very achievable by most people in the population when they're doing recreational activities
1: outside. Did you acclimate the rodents to the higher dosage or were they burned
0: No. So the doses we give are not sunburning doses. And that's important because once you burn the skin, you start to get very, very different biological responses happening. And we're very careful to make sure that we do not burn the skin because of that. So the doses we give are definitely on the high side compared to what we would normally give for skin cancer, but they're definitely not sunburning doses.
1: Do we see a threshold effect where the risk for melanoma begins at a certain level and then rises from there? I do know your history. So the amount of times you've been burned as a child and adolescent, that has an impact on your melanoma risk profile going forward. But if you were to maintain a light tan across the year with moderate amounts of exposure consistently, generally speaking, because of course we have latitude, of course we have different genetic
0: backgrounds. So we do know that the biggest predictor of whether you're going to get melanoma later in life is whether you had a sunburning event as a child. Now in Australia, nearly everyone has had a sunburning event as a child. In our country, at least, it is a massive problem. The models for melanoma, at least, show that unfortunately, even UV light later in life is also potentially dangerous. And the reason for that is that UV light continues to suppress our immune system, and therefore it continues to suppress the anti-tumor immune response. And recently, it's been shown that, in fact, exposure to UVA late after the development of melanomas can enhance melanoma metastasis, and this is potentially lethal now. So it's a really tricky problem, Dan. To say that there's any one point in your life where you can say this is the reason you had melanoma, I don't think we can say that. What we can say is that we need to continue to protect ourselves from what we know is dangerous carcinogen. What these studies that we're doing and Shelley and Richard and others and Prue Hard and others are showing is that in fact, there are parts of the UV spectrum at different doses, different intermittencies that might have different effects on our health. And how we balance that with the carcinogenic effects is a real challenge for everyone.
1: We did see that these punctuated doses of UV, higher doses with more time in between, a powerful effect on suppressing weight gain in mice that were on a high-fat diet. So what were you able to look at in terms of their energy intake and output?
0: We suspected that what UV might be doing is it might be making them eat less food. And of course, that's a terrific way to place limits on weight gain. So to test this, we use what's called a Promethean monitoring system. And what this system allows us to do is to continually measure weight, activity, distance traveled, food intake, all of the respiratory measures, CO2 output, oxygen intake of individual mice over a 24 to 48 hour period. Surprisingly, what we found was, in fact, UV did not have any effect on the amount of food consumed. To some extent, the mice exposed to UV ate a little bit more. We also found that, in fact, there was no significant effect on the amount of movement or the distance traveled by the mice over a 24-hour period. And in fact, the mice who got UV traveled a little bit less. So it looks like that <laughs> you can eat more, move less, and still place limits on weight gain while there was no significant differences between the groups, what it does suggest is there's probably something else that explains the effect. And that's where we started to look at some of the fat deposits and we started to look in the liver as well. In fact, there was changes in the types of fat and the types of molecules that the fat produces that might explain why weight gain was being limited.
1: You looked at brown fat and also liver cholesterol levels. Let's start with brown fat. What did you find there?
0: So normally when you eat a high-fat, high-sugar diet, they're molecules that get activated when we do this, when we eat these types of food. And it's basically the body's way of responding to essentially a high fat, high sugar diet. And we notice in our mouse models that yes, as expected, mice being fed this type of diet had this activation phenotype. It's called uncoupled protein number one. And this was highly activated in response to the food intake. To our surprise, actually exposing the mice to UV prevented this from happening. So it suggested to us that there was something that UV was doing to the brown fat that might explain the effects that we were seeing. We looked at some of the cholesterol levels produced, triglycerides produced by the liver, and it turns out that yes, there was actually some significant effects in the liver as well. Now, this is quite remarkable because ultraviolet radiation does not penetrate much more than a few micrometers underneath the skin. In terms of UVB, it doesn't penetrate much at all, and yet we were seeing these systemic effects in the liver and brown fat deposits. It suggests that there's something produced in the skin that is making its way to the liver to exert this type of effect.
1: When I read the aspect about brown fat and it having a paradoxical effect from what you might think given what happened in terms of the weight loss, I would like to see more there to see if there's something else going on that is explaining this effect in yeah. brown fat.
0: This is not what we hypothesized. It was definitely (laughs) against what we had predicted. This is the nature of science. We have to be guided by the evidence that comes our way. We don't know what this means. We don't know how this is happening. Ongoing studies now are really trying to work out why this is happening and and what it actually means for metabolism in the host.
1: So we have the nitric oxide release, which we've discussed, and then also uh, activation of regulatory immune cells and UV-induced interleukin-33. So is UV light making an inflammatory diet less inflammatory?
0: A few years ago, we discovered that interleukin-33 was significantly upregulated in the skin of both mice and humans exposed to UV. And this is interesting for our current studies in that others have shown that this particular cytokine is involved in limiting obesity and diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease, particularly atherosclerosis. And this cytokine produced in the skin by UV could be responsible. Now, we haven't proven that. We haven't shown that that's the cytokine responsible for it. There could be other things as well. Just recently, after our paper was published, it was shown that the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which is, we know is produced by the UV in the skin, agonists to that receptor are finding their way to the liver and to the gut. And these UV-induced molecules are exerting effects distantly from the skin. So the aryl hydrocarbon receptor agonists could also be involved, although we haven't explored that in this current study.
1: You saw that liver triglyceride formation was increased and that might sound like a bad thing, but actually it's healthy.
0: Yes, it's contentious. There is some evidence to suggest that increased triglycerides could be protective in the liver and others have shown, of course, that increased triglycerides could be actually detrimental to the host. Clearly, what our studies have shown that, at least in response to UV, there is a significant increase in triglycerides in the liver. We predict that that's actually responsible for protecting the liver and we know that UV can do this. So Shelley Gorman has shown that yes, UV radiation can protect from liver steatosis, partly involving nitric oxide and partly involving vitamin D as well in that particular aspect. But quite clearly, this was associated with protection from weight gain and signs of
1: cardiovascular disease. Let's talk about atherosclerosis. This was pretty exciting. What did you find?
0: As an immunologist, I find atherosclerosis a fascinating disease. Essentially, if you look at atherosclerotic plaques, there is massive immune infiltration. And I would consider that to be a sign that modulating the immune system could be an effective way to treat this problem. So we actually thought, well, okay, so we have limits on weight gain. Shelley has shown there's changes in glucose metabolism. We have saw changes in the liver. We saw changes in brown fat could this actually be having an effect on real cardiovascular readouts? And so we looked at a model of atherosclerosis, and we know that if we feed our mice a high fat, high sugar diet for long enough, they will actually start to develop atherosclerotic plaques in the aortic arch and various parts of the descending aorta as well. So sure enough, in our control groups, they definitely develop significant atherosclerotic plaques. But if we gave the mice UV, they had significantly less atherosclerotic plaques. In fact, in some of the mice, they had, we couldn't find any at all. And so, what this allows us to do is to link those events weight gain, obesity, diabetes to actual cardiovascular outcomes. And I think this ties in very nicely with Richard's work on increased vascular flow and decrease in blood pressure. We can probably add to that, at least in animal models, effects on atherosclerotic plaques. Now, we don't understand how UV is doing this. It could be just because weight gain has been limited. It could be that glucose metabolism is being sort of helped to be restored, could be that the liver is healthier, or it could be that the immune system is being altered by UV. I suspect it's the combination of all of those events, which is why exposure to UVs is such a powerful health modulator.
1: What types of work are you planning on doing next to follow up on what you found so far?
0: So there's a couple of things that we would really like to understand. We would like to understand whether we can replicate this effect with just UVA or just UVB. And the reason for that is that Richard's work is showing us that UVA is particularly beneficial for releasing nitric oxide and for having effects on cardiovascular outcomes. The question would be in our models, does UVA alone achieve the same outcome or do we need UVB to do this? The reason why this is an important question to ask is that dermatologists within their repertoire of treatment options have phototherapy devices which can deliver just UVB or just UVA or various types of UV. And so understanding which part of the UV spectrum is responsible for this could actually allow us to develop therapies at the dermatology clinics. And we know this is important because giving just those types of UV means that we're less likely to get skin cancers. So that's one aspect we're currently exploring. The other aspect is to try to work out how could we work with epidemiologists and public health experts to find out exactly how much sunlight do we need to get skin cancer. Remarkably, we actually don't know how much sunlight we need to get skin cancers. We just know that sunlight causes skin cancers. So we would need to work out that. We would need to work out what are the health benefits and is it time for us to reconsider our guidance on UV exposure? And I think we need to have, and we are having robust debates, particularly with dermatologists who are rightfully concerned around the carcinogenic effects of UV. And the third area is, again, perhaps a focus of my group, By understanding the mechanisms by which UV drives these effects, can we actually develop ways to replicate and enhance those effects so that we can get the benefits of sunlight without actually needing to go out and get exposed to carcinogenic UV? I think this is perhaps a more long-term goal. And we've alluded to some of those in 33 the hydrocarbon receptor agonists, um, activation of regulatory cells, the release of nitric oxide stores. Can we actually do that in a therapeutic sense without having to get exposed to UV?
1: I have to mention something that was casually mentioned to me at this conference that I was at last weekend, the Ancestral Health Symposium. I gave a talk, by the way, on sunlight and health. Somebody came up to me and said, I went to Hawaii with my husband. I was on a ketogenic diet. I forgot to wear sunscreen and I didn't burn. And then I spent the week without any sunscreen on. Not only did I not tan, I didn't burn. Next time I went back to Hawaii, I'm on a low-carb diet, but not a ketogenic diet, and she burned to a crisp. Now, that's all I know, but it does bring up the idea about diet and sun exposure.
0: I know, absolutely. And I think this is actually a really important message, that modulating our exposure to the sun is not going to be enough. We're going to need to alter our diet. We're going to need to alter our activity. I mean, we now go to the gym to run on a treadmill, whereas we used to run around an oval. We swim indoors. It's a consequence of a modern lifestyle. We play sport nighttime under lights because of our work habit. So I think it's not just about sunlight. There are other things that have to change if we're going to combat these significant health problems. And actually, it's very interesting you allude to diet in particular, because some studies done here at Sydney by Professor Diona Damian have shown that increasing nicotinamide or vitamin B3 is actually a terrific way to help combat the skin cancer problem. What her group has shown, and she published this in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago now, very nicely that supplementing people who are at high risk of developing non-melanoma cancer cancers. With vitamin B3, significantly limited the number of new skin cancers that these patients got. What that tells us is that there are things we can do with our diet that can have significant impacts on whether or not we get skin cancers and whether or not we get the health benefits from UV.
1: My son, who's now six years old, is at summer camp. So he's outside a lot and we do put sunscreen on him, but we also make sure he's got a phytonutrient-rich diet every morning before he goes out there.
0: That's right. I, I put sunscreen on my kids every day too when they go to school. And it's very important, at least particularly in in countries or sunny areas where the UV is quite intense, that we continue to protect our skin. It is exposed to some significant carcinogens. I think when we look at also some of the co-carcinogens that are going to be significant, air pollution we know can have significant effects on whether or not we get skin cancers. And that can include smoking cigarettes is also a contributing factor. So there are going to be other environmental impacts that make it more or less likely to develop skin cancers.
1: Scott, thank you for doing all the work that you've done and also for coming on and talking about it. As I alluded to in the beginning, we evolved on a planet where we had a lot of exposure to sunlight. We've underappreciated the impact that that signal has in our health, but how to then create guidance to your average person about how much to get given the fact that life is much different now. Avoiding the sun altogether doesn't feel intuitively right, and yet it's hard to give somebody something that's prescriptive about how much sun exposure to get with the work you're doing and your colleagues will continue to gain insights and come up with some clearer guidelines that help to negotiate this relationship that limits the downside and helps us benefit from the potential upside.
0: Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at HumanOS.me.